0: Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback.
1: Hello, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Harrison Wynn, and I'm a dermatology resident from the Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is part of the special series, Titans of Dermatology, where we sit down with some of dermatology's most influential leaders to hear their stories and to reflect on their life path. I am joined today by world-renowned Mohs surgeon, Dr. John Zatelli. Dr. Zatelli completed his fellowship training in Mohs micrographic surgery under the direction of Dr. Frederick Mohs himself in 1980. He subsequently joined full-time faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, where he rose to the position of interim chairman of the Department of Dermatology. He has been in private practice since 1987, where he is also the co-director of the Zetelli and Broadwin Fellowships for Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology, and has trained more than 50 fellows in Mohs Surgery. Dr. Zatelli has served as the president of the American College of Mohs Surgery and has been honored with a Distinguished Service Award from the American College of Mohs Surgery, as well as a Stegman Award from the American Society of Dermatologic Surgery. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Zatelli. Thank you, Harrison. Can you start by telling Dialogues listeners about your childhood and upbringing? What were you like as a child? Good question. You know, I
2: always thought that my childhood was normal as a child. But having raised two children and now raising two more and comparing mine to their childhood, I think maybe mine was a little bit abnormal. No video games back when I was a kid. So I spent most of my time, as much time as I could outside, loved the outdoors and still do. And I think one thing that made my childhood unique was that I lived on a small street with no kids in my neighborhood. So, I had to kind of entertain myself, even though I had brothers and sisters. So, that meant spending a lot of time when I was outside building cabins, tree houses, that sort of thing, exploring, playing with my cousins whenever we would get together. And then in the house, maybe I was a little bit of a nerd. I remember my chemistry set and I had it all organized, doing little experiments, mixing chemicals, and doing stuff like that. And then after I was a little bit older, I had a my own little wood shop from age ten on, where I would build things, and eventually had my own cabinet company, cabinet making company. So I think mine was a little bit different than kids nowadays.
1: What were your dreams as a child? Did you dream of being a chemist or a woodmaker, or what were your dreams?
2: Yeah, from that chemistry set, I wanted to be a chemist, and then my mother always said, as we got older, you should always be a dermatologist. Why don't you be a dermatologist? You know, it's a good lifestyle and nobody ever dies. And I never, of course, paid any attention to my mom. Right. But as I got older, then I didn't really think of dermatology, but it it did make me think of medicine. And I liked biology, loved biology in school, loved, remember doing the dissections, fascinating. And maybe this sounds a little bit Morbid, but I remember as a kid being fascinated even by like a dead animal on the road, and like, what's inside them? You know. So it, sometimes my cousin and I would open up an animal and look, and uh, that was kind of fascinating. But what really stimulated me, I think, to go into medicine was when I worked. Since I didn't have kids to play with in my neighborhood, just, you know, once I got home from school, that was it. My next door neighbor was a funeral director. So I cut his grass, worked for all the neighbors, cutting grass, trimming hedges. And then he let me work in the funeral home, washing cars, going to the funerals, driving the flower car. And then he allowed me to come with him when he did the embalming for his funeral home and for other people's funeral homes. And again, I was just fascinated with that anatomy. That's when I knew I was
1: going to medical school. And so when you got to medical school, did you have in your mind that dermatology was your path or did you try to keep it open-minded? How did you ultimately end up on the road? To-
2: I like everybody. You know, when you go on certain rotations, I think I liked almost every rotation that I had. First, it was going to be surgery. But when I went on general surgery and rotated and I had to hold retractors, it was more technical and not as academic as I thought I liked. So then I changed my planned to internal medicine and matched in internal medicine for my internship. But my last rotation in medical school was in dermatology. And two things happened. One is that my daughter was born, which made me go back and listen to my mother and think about lifestyle. And the other thing is that in dermatology, I realized it wasn't just acne and warts, that dermatology allowed me to do the surgery. And it was fascinating. And I knew right then that was a match for me. So then there wasn't a match in those days. So
1: I applied and got into dermatology at Pitt and and started on that path. Sure, and as you got into dermatology residency, what led you to move surgery? What was that process like?
2: When I was in dermatology, we were a division of medicine and we had an acting chairman. So we had a small department, a large number of volunteer faculty, and we didn't really have any full-time faculty at that time. And I loved the surgery part. So we had volunteer faculty come in to teach us surgery, and then I arranged for the ENT department to help us with surgery to teach us as much as we could, and I I took care of arranging all of that, learned as much as I could. And then when I was a senior resident, my third-year resident in dermatology, the chairman said, John, why don't you go learn this thing called Mohs surgery? Not many people even knew about it at that time. And I said, well, yeah, that'd be fun. So I called Dr. Mo's office, you know, wanting to set up an interview and his secretary, Mary Jane, answered the phone and said, you know, I'm interested in applying. Can you send me an application? And she said, hold on, I'll get Dr. Mo's. I'm like, no, no, no. I I, (laughs) I just want an application. So of course, Dr. Mo's came to the phone and said, this was a week before the American Academy of Dermatology meeting. He said, all right, I'll tell you what, John, I'll meet you in my hotel room at nine o'clock after I have to go to this presentation for June Robinson's opening up her practice in Chicago. I'll meet you at the Palmer house at nine o'clock. So I go to the meeting, I go down to the Palmer house, nervous as heck, you know, I have got my suit on and everything, knock on the door and I'm expecting to, I didn't know who Dr. Mose was. I'm expecting to see a giant, right? He was a giant so, in my mind. And uh, the door opens and here's a, a small man in his pajamas. And I think, oh my God, I got the wrong room. You know, and I just sheepishly said, uh, Dr. Mose? He said, yes, come on in. And we had an interview. And after talking to him for about an hour, I said, well, what do I do? He says, well, just show up, you know, start your fellowship in in three weeks, January 1st. I'm a third year resident, I, I, you know, I can't do that. So I talked to my chairman and he said, no, you go up there and you learn because Dr. Moe's fellowship was six months at that point. So I moved to Wisconsin two weeks later and found a place, moved my family and uh, did my six month fellowship.
1: <laughs> wow, what a month. Amazing. Yeah. He, uh, he <laughs> offered you on the spot and just a few weeks later you're moving over to Wisconsin with Dr. Mose. Can you tell the audience what was Dr. Mose like? What was it like training with Dr. Mose?
2: Well, going there and knowing he was a giant and seeing the things that I saw was a true eye-opening experience. Dr. Mose was a stoic man, a wonderful guy, quiet, very smart, challenged you to think, he was fearless. He was not afraid to do anything that walked into the office because the things that I saw in fellowship, nobody would treat. These were things that no other doctor would treat. And so I saw just crazy things. Saw him take a layer in the brain. Saw him enucleate an eye under local anesthesia in the office. Saw him uh, remove the bone and go into the sphenoid sinus. You know, Remove a basal cell carcinoma that was invading into the bladder. We just things that nobody will ever see in their fellowship nowadays, but he, he was fearless and he could not be intimidated because at that time, a lot of people still thought Mo's surgery was done by charlatans, that this was a, a procedure where people put black paste on and tried to cure cancer. So there was a, still a lot of confusion at that time. And people did try to intimidate him during his professional career along the way, but it couldn't be done. And, That was one of the things that I walked away from my fellowship learning that same thing is I'm not going to let somebody intimidate me and I'm going to be fearless and I'm not going to turn down a case that I think that I
1: can do. So that principle of fearlessness, courage, and really speaking on behalf of what you believe sounds like that he really fostered those principles. uh, Absolutely. What other principles guide your early career and helped lead you to where you are today?
2: That's a very good question. I think yes. early on I learned about critical thinking. I didn't know that as a resident I think when we're residents in dermatology or anything our training up to that point is primarily believe everything that you're told. You have to. There's just way too much information to be able to question it along the way, right? We read books, you believe everything in the book. You read a journal, You read the conclusions, you believe it. That's what you have to do. You take what you are told by your attendings and you believe it because those are the facts. And even in residency, I I don't know that I questioned it that much. But when I came back from my fellowship and we started the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pittsburgh, Bill Eaglestein was the new chairman who came from the University of Miami. And Bill was a critical thinker. Bill was someone who taught me how to question, who taught me not to believe everything someone tells you to be evidence-based. Early on, he, he would ask the question to everybody. And it was it was a little bit intimidating to go, well, why do you think that? And then you'd have to answer him. And you know, you, you'd kind of be embarrassed when your chairman asked you a question like, I don't know because that's what I was told. So nowadays, when I teach my fellows, I said, I I don't want you to believe anything I tell you. So the, the critical thinking that I learned early in my career was, I think, a very important thing that I've carried with me and I try to instill in my fellows
1: right now. So critical thinking, courage, and really being able to think outside of what you read and just accepting it as dogma, really challenging what is out there and trying to find the evidence to support that. And so, Absolutely. I think these are principles that really guided you. And so you trained your first Mohs fellow in 1984 and have since trained more than 50 MoS surgeons, many of whom have gone on to influential leaders to become influential leaders themselves in dermatology and Mohs surgery. What do you look for when you evaluate prospective fellowship candidates, and how has that criteria changed over time?
2: I don't think it's changed over time, at least that I can think of offhand. What I look for is someone who is truly interested and who wants to learn. I love to teach, and there's nothing more satisfying than teaching someone who is curious and who wants to learn and who is willing to question and challenge me. That's how I learn. I look for someone who wants to use what I learn. I mean, I, I put a year of my life into each one of those 50 people that I trained. So I want them to use it and, you know, to go into practice and to do most surgery. I don't put a lot of weight into board scores. I look at their intellectual curiosity and in the papers that they've written, for example, and when we do an interview, I ask them about how that came to be. Did you know whose question was this, or what did you think? And but I like somebody who's willing to
1: challenge the current way of thinking. And Dr. David Broadland, of course, was one of your early fellows. And after Stin and Mayo came back to become your partner and co-director of the fellowship. The names of Telly and Brodlin are now almost intertwined, kind of like Simon and Garfunkel or Carmelo Malone and John Stockton, and have become synonymous with excellence in Mohs surgery. Can you tell the audience about your partnership with Dr. Broadlin and what has made it so successful?
2: I like that analogy, that's nice. But Dr. Broadlin and I are not only partners, but great friends. When he was a fellow, you know, the fellows are 30 years old when they do their fellowship. And when Broadlin started with me, I was 40. We we're only 10 years apart. And I had just been in private practice for a few years. We weren't terribly, terribly busy. So at the end of the day, we would go two blocks away on a golf course and play golf frequently during the week. So we became very good friends and that friendship persisted after fellowship, like it has with a you know, large number of the fellows that i trained that we became long lasting friends. And we would continue to meet and, and play golf at different places and after meetings and so forth. And when I got very, very busy in private practice in the mid-90s, and he had been in academics for quite some time, he asked me, he said, are you ready yet to come and join? And I said, I need help. And I would, no one would I rather have than you. So he moved to Pittsburgh and we built a second office and we've had a long lasting, good partnership. We don't fight. We believe the same things. I think our way of thinking and training and practicing medicine is very similar. Of course I trained them that way too. So there's a little <laughs> bias there, but it's just a partnership that's worked out very, very well.
1: So it sounds like it almost came naturally, came easy in that you and Dr. Brawlin just mesh as friends, as partners, colleagues. Does it take work to sustain and grow that partnership? It does. But David is a very
2: easy guy. And to be perfectly honest, I think sometimes marriages are more difficult to to maintain than this partnership. We just are a very good fit. We just get along very well
1: together. And so you've had an incredibly prolific and influential career in dermatology. We've heard you kind of attribute that to your great mentors and some of the courageous principles that you learned from them. What else do you attribute your success to, Dr. Zatelli?
2: three things I think one is my family that's been supportive and they put up with me when I'm crabby, when I'm writing an article or preparing to give a talk, you know, that they're like, okay, we understand to David Broadland, who, you know, questions and supports. And we talk about these things where we think differently than mainstream thinking. So we want to put it out there to the great staff, that I have that make my days automatic. I don't have to think too much about what I'm doing. It allows me to think about the academic things. And then finally, the, the largest thing that I attribute that proliferation of what we've added to the fund of knowledge is I attribute that to our fellows because they are the ones who do most of the legwork, the background, they Organize. They do the writing and the draft of the articles. Most of the time, Dr. Broadland and I come up with the ideas, and they do the legwork. But it's been that kind of a partnership with the fellows as well to get things done. We have an amazing group of people that we've trained.
1: Amazing. So among your family, Dr. Broadland, your staff, and fellows, it sounds like you've you surrounded yourself with talented, amazing, supportive people that have helped you take your career to essentially another level. Absolutely, well put. (laughs) And when you reflect on your career, is there anything you would have done differently?
2: Honestly, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm very happy with how it's progressed. I don't see any big mistakes that I've made along the way that would have changed me. I'm happy that I started in academics. Was a great way to start. I'm happy that I moved to private practice. My private practice, my day-to-day life in private practice, is no different than it was when I was full-time academics, except I have fewer meetings, and it <laughs> gives me a little bit more freedom. But uh, it's it's been a very wonderful path.
1: And what are your hobbies or interests outside of clinical medicine? Well, I'm a golf fanatic. Love to
2: golf and the other things that are very interesting, I love to fish, I love to bike ride, have a great interest in wine, really nice wine. I love to collect wine. And uh, those are the the biggest thing. Any, most things outdoors, love the outdoors.
1: Sure. Can you tell dialogues about one or two of the most important people in your personal life?
2: Well, it would always have to be Dr. Moe's. Is one very, very important. The, two other people. One would be my next door neighbor when I was a child growing up because I, like I said I didn't have anyone my age to play with. So there was a, a couple that lived across the street and had no children. And although he wasn't like a second father, he was the guy that taught me how to work. And whenever I was no more than eight years old when I would you know, get a quarter because he would let me wash his cellar windows and I would cut his grass and I would help him fix the car and I learned my work ethic from him primarily. And then I'd say Bill Eaglestein, besides Dr. Mose, my neighbor, and Bill Eaglestein taught me how to really be an academic person, how to think and how to write and how to give presentations. Uh, so he was probably one of the most influential people in my life.
1: Thanks. And you have accomplished so much already, Dr. Zatali, so this is kind of weird to ask, but what are your future aspirations?
2: I'm going to keep going.
1: Keep going. (laughs) I'm going to keep going. I love what I do.
2: And I think that's really important. And if I were to give any advice to residents or people early in their practices to, you have the ability to carve your own life. And my advice is to carve that life so that each day you love to wake up and to go to work. And if there are things at work that don't make you happy, then change it. Don't be afraid to change. I'd still love to go to work every morning. I never wake up and think, oh my gosh, it's a work day. I, I love it as much as the weekends. And we all have that ability to, to carve our own lives. So carve it so that you have the balance that you like with work and
1: family and where you want to be. Shared a few of really meaningful pearls with us during this interview from carving your own life not being afraid to change what you're unhappy with, not being afraid to question dogma, and being courageous. These are principles that I think all of us can really learn from. And on behalf of Dialogues listeners, I'd like to thank you for your time today, Dr. Satelli. It's pioneers like you that have shaped dermatology for years to come, and we are fortunate to be able to learn from your example. Thank you, Dr. Satelli.:
2: that's, that's flattering. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Harrison, and good luck to you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.